What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Sorry to Interrupt podcast. Today, Sean and I jumped right in and we talked about our top NCAA Final Four games from 1990 on, being that it is April 5th and this weekend would have been the Final Four. Unfortunately, it's not. I hope everybody is quarantining out there. Sean and I went 3-1, to one, also had a little bit of music for you guys, as well as our end segment where I come up with some crazy ideas and see what Sean thinks about them. So follow us on Twitter at Sorry Sports. Follow us on Instagram, Sorry underscore Sports. Check out the website. Sean should be running something new. And eventually when I get around to it, I'll put my article up as well. That is SorrySports.com. Shoot us an email if you have anything to say regarding the podcast or any of the articles. SorrySports at Yahoo.com. Enjoy the pod. We will talk to you guys tomorrow. And please stay inside. Welcome back, everybody. Sorry to interrupt. We're here on a Sunday night, and it would have been the weekend of the Final Four, man. Can you believe it? Everything's depressing nowadays, man. Everything. One thing that wasn't was the song. I like that a lot. Thank you. I got a lot of good feedback on the song. We got another one coming today. We let off with uh, Feel My Flow, Naughty by Nature. Um, another Tommy Boy Records label. So Tommy Boy was a huge record label back in the 90s. This song went to number 17 on the Billboard 100. They actually released it as a single in the United States. It was from their fourth album. Uh, Naughty by Nature started in 1986, and they're still going to this day. They have a lot of hit songs going on. Um Perform with some big acts. Queen Latifah, who a lot of people forget, started off as a music star, then was a plus-size model, now is an actress, activist, whatever she is. Did a little thing with a guy named uh, Tupac. I don't know if you ever heard him. Yeah, I heard of him. Yeah. Did a little thing with him. Their most favorite song, their most famous song is probably the sample of uh, ABC, which is OPP. Um, Go ahead and give that one a listen from the early 90s. Uh, they've got a lot of bangers out there, and, and just another interesting group, so go give them a listen. Naughty by Nature, Feel My Flow, and uh, we might as well flow on into what we were going to do today following that. Uh, this is why you're a pro, man. This is why you're a pro. I try, man. I well try. Done. Well done. All right, so here's what we're doing today, guys. We're celebrating what would have been the final four weekend with a two-part podcast leading today off with ranking our top three national semifinal games. So not national championship games, just final four games. And we are keeping kind of the trend going, right, buddy? Uh, yep. 1990 on. We're using that 30-year line of It's not fun to do something, and who are we to talk about something that we weren't alive for? That's just the bottom line. Yeah, I agree with you. And also, like, you know, everybody knows the Magic and Bird game in 79 well documented the ucla teams you know all of that stuff has happened and has been talked about forever and i felt like when you and i were growing up those were the highlights and all the games that we saw so now we're going to kind of go into our era when we were growing up and watching the final four um either when we were just born or when we were uh when we were getting older going through our school and whatever so tom 
give me your number three ranked national semifinal game since 1990, please. So my number three ranked is kind of a nostalgia thing for me. Also a good game. Um, and it kind of speaks to college basketball, which is a team sport. Uh, and in this game, they really, the teams really needed to play good team basketball. It was Georgetown versus Ohio State in 2007. Ohio State ended up coming away with that game 67-60. And if you took a look at the roster and I just showed you the roster, it did not go as expected. Uh, no, it really didn't, man. I mean, it was supposed to be a battle of the big men, right? Hibbert and Odin. And in the first half, they were completely taken out of it. Each had a couple moments there in the second half, but foul trouble. it was, it was, yeah, foul trouble like crazy. A lot of nickel dime calls that were going on between both of them, but it just goes to show they didn't really position themselves all that well. They put themselves in a lot of poor positions where they became vulnerable and committed fouls that they really shouldn't have. Absolutely. So why don't you give me your number three? We'll just go down our list because me and you are in agreement with most of them. And then we'll start breaking down the games. Love it, man. So for me, my number third ranked team, uh, or game rather, went uh, in 1993 between the Michigan Wolverines and the Kentucky Wildcats. Rick Pitino. Slick, slick Rick Rick Pitino. I own a head coach uh, if they ever play college basketball again. I know. Not going to St. John's. I know you had your little tangent on that. Um this game was awesome. So it was the Fab Five's second year together. They had lost in the national championship the year before to Duke. So, or in the final four, rather, to Duke. So they come back the second year. They're protesting a lot of the Nike brand stuff. And honestly, man, this game to me, it was Jamal Mashburn. It was Chris Weber. And that was the premier matchup. We'll get more into this game in a little bit, but... Um, Michigan ended up winning and advancing to the national championship game uh, against North Carolina. Uh, but this was a really fun game. 81-78, Michigan won in overtime. Yes. Um, all right, so moving on to both of our number two games. We have Sean's homer pick here, but I was in agreement with him. 2004, UConn versus Duke. UConn wins, what was it, 79-78. Yeah. That, that's my number two as well. Like you said, um, this game was awesome. And when we talk about it, we'll remember a lot of great moments about it. This was not really a homer pick, man. I mean, this is one of the greatest NCAA semifinal games of the last 30 years. Absolutely. And then number one, one of the greatest college basketball games. And I would think probably given the circumstances, one of the greatest college basketball upsets of all time. Duke uh, upsets the number one team in the country, defending champs, undefeated UNLV. This was in 1991, right, Sean? Yes, sir. And this was the year after UNLV killed them in the championship game. Yes. By 30. Yes, and um, this was Duke before they really... This was the building of Duke's dynasty, I guess you would say. So they weren't known as the powerhouse that they are today, and they kind of formed it this year. Yeah, they had some isolated years, and you could see it starting to come together in 1990. They get to the championship game, but UNLV just runs them off the floor, and a young Duke team had another year together, and um, they sought revenge and got it against the running Rebels. And you're right, this was really one of the best college basketball games ever. Now, everybody listening to this is probably going to say, oh, what about the shot? What about the Leitner shot? Um 
But if memory serves you right, everybody knows that that sent Duke to the Final Four. That that was an Elite Eight game. That was the Elite Eight game. Yeah, that, that was. That, that was, was in 1992. Yep, that was one of the greatest. That was one of the greatest games of all time. But it does not crack our Final Four celebration. Can't. So can't can't have it. Won't have it. Absolutely. All right, so let's jump into my game first. Um, this game, like I said, was more of a nostalgia game. Georgetown versus Ohio State back in 2007. We'll set it up for everybody. We'll name some of the key players in the game. So on one side, you had probably the most talented player of all of them, reigning Big East player of the year in the tournament, as well as um, in the regular season, and that's Jeff Green of Georgetown, and the big man who a lot of people probably remember for having a decent, short but decent stint in the NBA, uh, Roy Hibbert, against two freak freshmen. Um, the consensus at the time, and it wasn't really that crazy to believe it, number one overall pick, Greg Oden. Looking back at the time, a lot of people will tell you, oh, they had Kevin Durant over him. I'm calling bullshit on that. Greg Oden wasn't Greg Oden's career wasn't derailed because he wasn't great. It was because of his health reasons. He also looked like a 40-year-old man at 19 years old, but I don't know if that had anything to do with it. And then, of course, Mike Conley, who's had a great career. Yeah, and, and it just speaks to where basketball still was at the time. I mean, dominant big men, this game was highlighted as a battle between two of them, Hibber and Oden, and dominant big men who were going to be able to control the game in the low post that that was still the general consensus of where to go when drafting first. I mean, Wings and Kevin Durant, he was so skinny. He was he had a great year in Texas, but it, it just wasn't the trend yet of where teams and GMs were looking. All right, so let's go through the game. First thing I wrote was almost painful to watch. A lot of misses in this game, man. You know, 67-60. A lot of these scores are going to be a little bit lower than what you expect today, but that's just how basketball was played even back in 2007. Yeah, you had you had a couple of fast-paced moments here, but overall the game, it, it, I got to say, the officiating was pretty good. They let them play for the most part. Except for Hibbert and Oden. I was just going to say, I think for the, aside from those two who rung up the first three fouls, there wasn't a foul called before like the 12-minute No, there was not. Aside You're right. From them. So... Yeah, so that was, to me, they were really letting the guys play. But aside from Connolly, who was just running it for, for Ohio State, it, there wasn't a lot of up-and-down-the-floor, high-paced basketball. Everything kind of came to a stall, right? No, and, and Conley during that game, I think he's overlooked just like his NBA career. He, he could have done whatever he wanted in that game, pretty much. Do you think that was more of him just being a freshman and yeah, not ready absolutely. to be super assertive yet? Yeah, but there was a lot of plays where he was, and he he was assertive when he needed to be. He had a he had a big M one, I believe, in the second half, and hit a couple threes that really mattered, and just broke everybody down off the dribble, setting up his teammates as well. I was impressed with even from a young age of how ambidextrous he was. I mean, he was yeah. finishing at the rim with his right hand a lot too, and Absolutely. like you said, I mean, he was getting to the rim basically every time he wanted, blowing past the defenders. I wonder if you fast forward this game to 2015, 2016, if he's just deciding I'm going to take this game over with Odin out and I'm going to be the best player on the floor the entire the entire 40 minutes. Well, yeah, and that's just the player that that is around today. I think if you put him in the AAU circuit, that gets a little bit deeper, even though he was already in it. 
But when it's a little bit heavier now and everybody's used to being the superstar, I think he's a lot more comfortable doing that. Um, but you look, Greg Oden draws his second foul, an offensive foul, with 17 minutes left in the first half, and you really didn't see much of him after that. Um, you didn't see much of him in the first half at all. Um, I, think I don't he, think he returned, right? No, he didn't. And I don't I don't know if he scored or if he had two points, but it wasn't a very good showing from him in the first half just due to the foul trouble. Um so not really what you expected, but honestly, Georgetown really didn't take too much of too much advantage of that. It was kind of disappointing. Um, another thing I watch. Oh, I don't know if you noticed this. Ohio State was so active on the ball and had so many turnovers. Every time Hibber touched the ball, it felt like he it, they would slap at it and it would get stolen from. It, it did feel that way. I, mean, I think that was a really just, good game plan by Fab Mata. It was, and just for context, Georgetown turned the ball over 14 times. Yep. So it, they clearly were not in sync. And, I, and again, I think a lot of it falls. I know you want to go in deep on this, and I'm going to let you take control of it because this is your game. But I think a lot of it falls on Jeff Green. I mean, yep. Jeff Green just did not – he didn't take control. He wasn't assertive at all. He was super passive. I mean, really, I think Wallace was the best player on the floor for Georgetown in this game. I agree with you completely. Um, I actually have written down in my notes here um, pretty much that I wrote Jeff Green, the ultimate cock tease elite player. Um, in the first half, he was throwing <laughs> dimes, really grabbing – I think he grabbed like six to, to eight straight rebounds, bringing the ball up, but couldn't get a bucket if his life depended on it. And this guy is an uber athlete. He should have gone to the basket every single time. Not to mention, and my two keys to the game, obviously, were Jeff Green fucking choking on his own spit and the fact that you had you had Ohio State playing four-guard sets with not a very big big man in there with their backup, and they're not taking advantage of it. Hibbert is on the bench, and Jeff Green is not going to the basket. I think this game was lost for two reasons. One, being that Jeff Green did not take over this game like he should have, and two, that that um, John Thompson Jr. did not have the right game plan when Greg Oden got in tr- into foul trouble, and that was just pounded into those two guys, being Green, letting him do whatever he wanted, and Hibbert in the post. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way. I was ready for them to take advantage of Oden's absence, and they just never did. And just Throughout the first you- half, I mean, the analysts kept alluding to – I mean, I think it was Jim Nance, and I forgot the other guy. They kept saying, Billy like, yeah, they kept saying, like, oh, Ohio State going with this four-guard small lineup, and it never cost them. It didn't, because they were able to spread it out, and they did, aside from Conley, they had some veteran leadership at the guard position. I mean, David Lighty didn't finish with a tremendous stat sheet, but he, he had an unbelievable impact on the defensive side Absolutely. of the ball. And just to give you context to what you were talking about with Jeff Green before, he finished with 12 rebounds, but nine points. Yep. And the biggest number to me is he attempted five field goals, and none of them were threes. Yeah. So, I mean, you, he that's just a guy that didn't want to leave his footprint on the game. And to what you said, the ultimate Cockty superstar, that's his entire NBA career. Teams should have been scared off of him immediately based off of that performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yet, given his athletic ability and whatnot, he's still playing in the league, and he's still getting big money contracts, you know, 10, 15 years later. A couple other notes. Doc Rivers, kid, other kid, not um, Austin Rivers. Jordan Rivers played in this game, and he was pretty good. He had a decent game. Um, 
not hey, a decent hey, hey, game hey. stats-wise, but he, he's got a good handle on the basketball. He played overseas, something I noticed. Patrick Ewing's son was complete trash. Yeah, neither of them had any points. Pat Ewing played 17 minutes. Uh, Jeremiah Rivers here played 13 and they just weren't memorable moments. I mean, none of them. There was no impact off the bench for Georgetown at all. No, not no. I mean, if I, I that's that was my other two keys to the game is that Ohio State Ohio State owned the fast break in this game, and that they also their bench they Georgetown had no answer for it. First of all, they had zero points from all of their bench players. Meanwhile, I believe Ohio State had eleven combined from their bench players, but it wasn't even that. Guys like Daquan Cook, as well as Butler, who wasn't a bench guy, but he was more of an ancillary player. And like you mentioned, Lightly and another guy, Harris, just were so much better than anything that Georgetown had to offer off the bench. A lot of bound scoring here for Ohio State and very staggered scoring for Georgetown. And I think that meant a, a lot when you were going down the stretch there. It was still kind of close. Uh, and and Ohio State was able to just pull away because they had more guys on the floor that could make plays, especially with Jeff Green doing a disappearing act. Yeah, now, the glaring thing in this game, I think, more than anything, is Jeff Green. And like you said, the NBA team should have taken a hard, hard look at that, especially the Celtics who drafted him, and really thought about it again because he plays small when the lights come on. Yeah, I mean... I was shocked by it. I, I really, I didn't remember this game to be brutally honest with you before I watched it, and I was kept waiting for him to kind of take off, you know, yeah. and say, "All Every right, play, I'm you're like, I'm, all right, I'm this go is on the a one run here because my team needs me," and it just it never happened. And the announcer said that right as the buzzer sounded as well. A um, couple other observations: six minutes thirty-seven seconds left in the game. Greg Oden tried to commit murder on a human being, uh, dunked from, <laughs> dunked from God, maybe maybe a step or two within the free throw line. And this guy, I mean, when you watch him, it shows glimpses of why he was the number one overall pick. Obviously, he didn't play that much, but the footwork was there. I mean, if he didn't have all those fouls, he would have torched Hibbert all day. Multiple blocks, quick second jump, really good footwork, and a supreme athlete as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lie, man. I kind of want to watch the final now and see what he did in that game because I felt like I didn't get the real Greg Oden experience here. Yeah. I mean, obviously they went on to lose to that really good Florida team. But, again, that was that was a junior-related team. This team's really young. Um, let me see. I have a few more takeaways written down. I wrote down the points, but we already went over that. All right, let's right, let's do the two categories here. Who was, in your opinion, the most important and best player in this game? And then to follow that question up, who was your who who went on to have the best career? I'm gonna kind of just tie the two together, man. Mike Conley, it's Mike Conley for both. Yep, absolutely. Fifteen points he finished up Complete with. Complete control six of the six, game. Five rebounds. Controlled the game again. I think if you fast forward this game another eight to ten years, he ends up finishing with about twenty six points instead of fifteen. But you know, it, it definitely gave a prelude to what he'd be as a pro, dictating tempo, pushing the pace, being an explosive uh, an explosive lead point guard, and that's what he was in this game. Absolutely. So probably not the most fun game to watch, but again, it was more nostalgia for me. That was my number three. And I think the right team won in this one. Again, if Jeff Green has – 
you know, a breakout player game, a Michael Jordan-esque game, or whatever you want to say. I think Georgetown wins this game by 5 to 10 points. They seem to have control of it for for most of the game, but they just couldn't get the ball in the basket, and they really needed him. Yeah, the game was calling there for a little bit for somebody to just take over, and it never really happened, especially, I mean, Jeff Green, in the entire pace of the game there, man, about two or three times in the first half and second half combined, just screamed Jeff Green's name, and, and he never he never answered the call. Yeah, he got real small, like I said, when, it, when the game got big. All right, so let's move on to your number three, my friend, and that is... All right, buddy, so, Go yeah, ahead. so... No, it's all good. I, I was just going to say we're doing Michigan and Kentucky, uh, 1993 um, Final Four game that well, sent Michigan to the national title. My first question is: I was I watched I was watching the whole game. I saw the warmups. Um, I think you alluded to this earlier, but they didn't wear any Michigan branded things. It seemed they were wearing like a either a black or a blue Nike tee, and that was pretty much it. I was curious about that. Yeah, it was a plain navy blue tee with just the yellow Nike sign on the on the side of the arm. Um, this was when Michigan, the university, was really profiting off their likeness. And there was a lot of Fab Five influence going into the marketing world and, and customer world in the early 90s that none of these players were getting any kind of, you know, uh, benefit from. So... It was kind of their protest, their first year in 92. It was all about fun and games. And Billy Packer, who was doing the color commentary on the CBS broadcast, kind of spoke to it saying, you know, it was they were talking about how fun it was the year before to yep. get there. They were the new kids on the block starting five freshmen, which had never happened before. And then by this time, it was more like a middle finger to the rest of the world. Like, we came back here with vengeance, and we're going to win, and – you know, kind of a FU to Michigan and the NCAA as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, early things I take away from this game, aside from Jamal Mashburn and maybe one other player, um, they just didn't even belong on the floor with Michigan athletically. Yeah, um, I think a big example of that is Travis Ford, the point guard for Kentucky, who had won the SEC tournament MVP heading into the tournament and had a lot, had a really good run up until this game. And he was held to only 12 points, six assists and shot two of six from threes, but really none of it came until way later on. Michigan led at the half by five. Um, they started Ford, strong. Ford reminded me of a poor man's Bobby Hurley, which I think the announcer alluded to as well. That's yeah, he did that again, Packer doing color commentary there. And that, that's a really good comment by you. He was, he kind of had the ability to, to be Bobby Hurley, but he didn't have the aggressiveness of Bobby Hurley. Now, the one thing I took away from this, because it obviously was a close game and it was a good game, the thing that the biggest impact, and I think the thing that lost Kentucky this game, was Dale Brown late in the second half. I don't know if he dove into the scorer's table or he rolled over on his shoulder. I don't think he was seen after that. I think that's really what cost Kentucky this game, because he was really good to start off. Oh, dude, there's no doubt about it. He ended up separating his shoulder, which um, was which was brought up after the four-minute timeout. He had, um, I'm looking here, he had 16 points and shot four of six from three. 
So he was absolutely. He was their best player because Mashburn was ice cold in the second half. Mashburn was ice cold in the second half, and he was the guy that was able to make a shot when Kentucky needed it the most. But, you know, another guy that came off the bench and played good minutes for Michigan is Rob Polenka. I was going to say, Polenka, who was a junior, I believe, and when um, Jimmy King fouled out, and even before that, he was playing a lot of impact minutes. He was, because King, he was in foul trouble a lot. He only finished with two points and three assists. He had a much better national championship game, which we'll talk about tomorrow. But this, this was really a time where Steve Fisher didn't have a deep bench, but he had an experienced bench. And Rob Polinka, who had won a championship in 89, was able to come back and be a, and be a key member off the bench and serve valuable minutes to this freshman-dominant team. Um, at the half, I mentioned Michigan led by five. Weber had 16. Mashburn had 17. As the game goes on, Michigan led by as many as 11 points with 13-33 uh, left in regulation. Kansas or Kentucky rather then goes on a 10-0 run to tie the game at 9-20. And this was really just a bore of attrition. Once Brown went out, you kind of felt the momentum leading towards Michigan. Although Travis Ford then finally comes up and hits a couple of threes the game is ending up being tied at 71 rose misses the potential game-winning shot to go into overtime kentucky led by four dude with 330 left in overtime which was their biggest lead of the game before mashburn fouled out with 26 yep and i believe um ford hit two free throws uh, with 10 seconds left to tie the game and it was one of the most bullshit foul calls i've ever seen um yeah, a couple other things I had written down here. Officiating was terrible, but it was terrible on both sides of the ball, so it didn't really matter. It was just a terrible. It was a tough game to watch when it comes to that. But yeah, I, I think for this game, the two things that really cost uh, can't or sorry, excuse me, Kentucky the game was Mashburn one fouling out and two just being ice cold for second half through. The overtime period, and then obviously Brown getting hurt was the biggest thing because he was on fire. He was, and I I really got the sense, and I'm sure you did too, that if Brown continued to stay in that game, he had already went four six from three. Like I said, there was another one or two of them in him to to make a huge difference. I think they win that game by four in in regulation if he stays in. I mean, that's certainly. Yeah, that certainly could have been the case, and he had the firepower to do it. I think what was amazing about this game, man, was Michigan attempted four threes the entire game, while Kentucky attempted 21 of them. They made seven. Yeah, I mean, that's 90s basketball for you, my friend. Another takeaway I had was that, you know, Jalen Rose, um, I mean, everybody knows him. He's a public figure. He's extremely famous, but... He was underrated. I think he should have played a lot more point guard in the NBA. He, If I were to comp him to anybody, I guess if they're both lefties, which I guess is kind of a cop-out, but I just see him as kind of a Ben Simmons-type player. Guy that can handle yeah, the ball at 6 Yeah, I don't think that's eight. a bad comp at all. And, I mean, he's a much better – he's not as, athle- as athletic as Ben Simmons, but he's a much better shooter. So I think he would have had a much more pro- prolific NBA career had he been able to handle the ball a little bit more. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, man. I don't think that's a cop-out because, you know, he goes to a Denver team that really didn't have any need for him, and it wasn't until he went to Indiana that he was able to really see his game blossom. And I don't think he was around at the right time for his style of play. I think if he was another couple years later, 
he would have been a far better pro, or at least his career would have gotten off to a better start. He just didn't really have a real position because teams didn't want six, eight point guards at that time in the in the early to mid nineties. Yeah, it was more of an era of you got to fit the system as opposed to we're going to build the system around you, which is much more the NBA now. Yeah, no, absolutely, and we we do see that still happen. I mean, because if you look Simmons, at a guy, if you look at a guy like Simmons, I mean, he's out there running point. They're kind of aside from Embiid building the offense around him as best they can. Look at Giannis. Giannis would be. They'd be like, put more weight on, you're going to be a center back in the 90s. Now he's handling the ball. He's doing everything. Yeah, and again, when when do we talk about Simmons being at his best? When Embiid's not on the floor or playing? Yep. And, and I think the same is for Giannis as Milwaukee's constructed that team where yeah, you, know, you surround him with a couple of shooters and really just let him do his thing. I think Rose was not really ever able to do that, and there were spurts where he was that player at Michigan, but... Not all the time, because you had a Jimmy King who who was the primary ball handler. Yes, sir. All right. So for this game, give me your best player in the game and then best career. So for me, I know Mashburn finished with a really good game, but it was very first half dominant, as you mentioned. I'm going to say Chris Weber was the best player in this game. He had 27 points, 13 boards, and two blocks. And when it's all said and done, he had the best career. I think I think Weber had the best career. It wasn't as long as Rose, but no, he it's was not better even close. at his peak. Five-time yeah. All-Star, one-time first-team All-NBA. Um, he kind of threw away his first couple of years just being an asshole, to be honest with you. But yeah, he by far had the best NBA career. But don't, and also let's not completely undersell Mashburn here. He had a really good career for the Hornets in Charlotte, and. He was a damn good player for a long time. Oh, he absolutely was. He just isn't on the level of Weber. No, I couldn't agree more. I just wanted to give him that shout-out. Of course. There was, there was a lot of times in this game where he was the best player on the floor. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I believe he was was he, he was a one-and-done freshman. No, dude. He ended up lasting through his junior year. Wow. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because the year before, he was on the team that lost on that Leitner shot. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, yeah, he was a very, he was a damn good player and uh, ended up being a very good pro. But like you said, not quite to Chris, Weber, Chris Weber's level. All right, so why don't we move on to the number two? I'm going to let you take over on this one because this is probably where you got your first boner back in 2004. <laughs> um, That's not right. UConn against Duke, like I said earlier. 78-79, or yeah, that was it. Um, UConn wins. They follow that up, go to the national championship game and win that one as well. Um, a lot of people remember Mecca Okafor and Brandon Knight in this game. A young Charlie Villanueva was also involved in this game. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, both of these teams, first thing I wrote down, were absolutely loaded. They were. And, and I mean, obviously UConn was led there by... Okafor, Ben Gordon. They started Josh Boone, who was a freshman. You had Bill Nueva, who was a freshman. You had Rashad Anderson, who is a sharpshooter, as a freshman. And Talik Brown being a veteran point guard. I mean, that's all the ingredients for a really good team. Duke here had Chris Duhon, Luol Dang, J.J. Redick, Sheldon Williams. I mean, this both teams were really, were really stacked, as you said. Absolutely, and the they fact were, that... The fact that Duke never won a national championship in the in the JJ Redick 
regime, I guess you would call it, is, is pretty interesting. It is. I, I think that they had teams to do it, but they were never the best team. Yeah. And, you know, this was the second, this was the third time these teams had matched up in, uh, in the NCAA tournament late. Uh, in 91, before Leitner's most famous shot against Kentucky happened, he had a buzzer beater against UConn in 91 in the Meadowlands in the Elite Eight to send them to the Final Four. And then in 99, UConn gets revenge and gets their first championship uh, beating the uh, Corey Maggette, Elton Brand-led Duke team. So in 04, they were matching up again for the third time. Uh, and to be honest, man, this game had everything. But you didn't know that from the get-go because – UConn leads 10-4 after the 16-minute timeout. They're up 15-4 at the 14-minute mark, but Okafor is not a part of it. He fouled for the second time at 16:05 left in the first half and never returned. And once he was out, Shavlik Randolph for Duke just completely took over because Sheldon Williams was having problems of his own staying on the court. And Duke ends up being able to go on a 15-1 run uh, and take a 24 to 19 lead at the under eight timeout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Duke kind of had the, even though they never had a championship, kind of started off with the championship pedigree there, and they really looked like they were going to take it. But then looking forward to the second half, possibly my best player in the game was Anderson. He was lethal from three in the second half. Yeah, this was where he kind of took over that big shot mentality he had another run in 2006 he had a game against washington in the second round brandon roy's washington uh huskies where he had a game tying shot with 40 seconds left and another one with three seconds left to send it into overtime so that sharpshooting began in this game against duke duke leads by uh by seven at the half Okafor comes back out, draws his third foul down six at the 16.04 mark in the second half. And you're wondering, is he ever going to leave uh, a mark on this game? He ended up doing so in a big way, but not till later on. Yeah, I mean, not to fast forward on you here, but he did hit the clutch free throw to seal it. He did, and he was not known for that. But, you know, before we get there, Duke's up six at the under-12 timeout. Then Okafor comes back and decides, you know what, I don't know how long I'm going to be in this game, so I need to take over, right? And he scores eight straight. And Duke's now only up one with just over nine minutes to go. They still lead by three at the under eight timeout before Sheldon Williams fouls out. And he didn't have much of a game, man. He had four points, two blocks, six boards. He was just constantly in and out of foul trouble and never really able to establish himself in this game. Yep. Yeah, I think he's better known for being Candace Parker's ex-husband or whatever he is than anything else. <laughs> I think that's a good point. So with 3.22 to go, Duke is up eight, and it looks like they've got this game until Shavlik Randolph, who finished with 13 points a block and six boards and really kept Duke in the game in the first half, actually you know, vaulting them to a nice lead there. He fouls out. And with 135 to go, Duke's up three, and it's a one-point game with 21 seconds left. Rashad Anderson comes out, makes both free throws. UConn now has a three-point lead. And what did you think of that last possession for Duke? I thought they got a good shot giving it to Redick. 
I mean, yeah, it, it was it was contested, but again, you got the best player in the country, or one of the best players in the country, with a shot that looks like it's about to go in. I mean, any JJ Redick shot is from inside half court is high percentage, right? Yeah, I agree. And I know he wasn't having the best game. He finished with 15 and 3 of 9 only from 3. But when you're down 3, you're going to drop a play. You get it to the guy that became one of the best 3-point shooters in the history of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then, obviously, we mentioned the Emeka free throw that was clutch. Then Duhon comes down the floor. I don't know what the lines were on this gambling-wise, but... He hit a three to make it a one-point game, but it didn't matter. It was at the buzzer. UConn went on to win. Why don't you give me your best player in the game, player of the game, whatever you want to call it, and the best career. In my book, it's Anderson was the best player in this game. You can make a really good case for Anderson. He finished with 14 points and was 3 of 5 from 3. I'm going to say, honestly, the most important player for UConn in this game was Josh Boone. Okay. The center, because in the, the first center. half, he, he, yeah, he kept them going when Okafer was in foul trouble. He only finished with nine points, but he had 14 boards and a block and was down and giving Randolph a lot of problems and Sheldon Williams. They both ended up drawing a lot of fouls because of Josh Boone. So I'm going to say Boone was the reason they won this game. Um, and to me, honestly, there's a lot of great players in this game. Redick probably has the best career, right? Um, I mean, even it's, in a losing effort, it's pretty much it's pretty much a competition between Redick and Luol Deng. Yeah, I and it depends so. if you want to talk about peak or you want to talk about just the career in general. Because Luol Deng fell off a cliff because um, what's what's the head coach in Chicago? Um, what was his name? He's about- Minnesota now. Um, oh, uh, you were talking about Thibodeau, right? Thibodeau just ran his ass into the ground, but he was, I believe, a two- to three-time All-Star, um, and he had a much better peak than J.J. Redick. But given that, obviously the longevity's not there. Luol Deng is out of the league, and he kind of fell off a cliff, whereas J.J. Redick's been steady Eddie, and who knows what's up with this NBA season, but he's made the playoffs every single year of his NBA career. Yeah, I'm glad you said that last part, because I think that's the biggest deal. And just for... You know, UConn, Okafor never really had the pro career that people were hoping for. He was the first overall pick by the then Charlotte Bobcats, and he never really amounted to much. Ben Gordon had a couple really nice years there in Chicago. Six man of the year. Yeah, he was was always a a guy you knew could score for you, but he never ended up having the kind of sustained career that a Rip Hamilton or uh, or a Ray Allen had before him. And Charlie Villanueva was there. You know, he had a couple of years there in Detroit. Yeah, and maybe the all-rookie team. Yep. So, but to me, I think Dang and Reddick were, ended up being the best pros with giving the nod to Reddick, but they didn't end up winning in this game. Dang did finish with 16-12, and 12, which is a really nice stat line. But this UConn team was just so loaded, man. It, it really was. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, moving on to the number one game. And this one was a lot of fun to watch. Just throwing it way back to, what was it, 1991? That's it. Duke versus UNLV, like Sean, like Sean alluded to a little bit earlier, rematch. Um, defending national champs, and they were undefeated. 
my first note was that Grant Hill is just a different animal, and he just looks so good from the jump. He really did. And I would say you could put Leitner in there, too. I mean, especially when Duke was up seven with just over 15 to go in the first half. I mean, Leitner and, and Grant Hill were, were just dominating at this point in the game. Now, my question to you is, I have a few written down here. Would Leitner be good? He had an okay NBA career. Decent. He made a lot of money. Um, but obviously not to the extent that we expected him to have. Would he be nice in the NBA right now? I think if you keep his personal stuff aside, which he had some problems with early in his NBA career, he would be the perfect guy for today's NBA. I mean, you could stretch him. He's a, he's a quintessential stretch four because, you know, in this game he went um, – he only went one of uh, he only went one of one from three. He only took one. Yeah, but but you if, could if see you could... that the jump shot form was there. He he's shooting ninety percent from the free throw line, and he's not the most athletic or fleet footed guy. He kind of had a herky jerky game to him. But I mean, Dirk Nowitzki wasn't the most athletic or or you know uh, speediest. I think guy if you, if you put, yeah, if you put him in a corner, he would hit you know, 40% of his threes. And he was enough of a ball handler where he could take you by surprise, post up, hit a fadeaway, hit a mid-range shot, even though that's not huge in today's game. But you also could leave him on the floor because much like Nowitzki, he was automatic from free throw, like you said, 90%. Yeah, and let me just say, I'm not comparing Christian Leitner to Dirk Nowitzki. Um, No, I don't. That's a sin. But with that being said, I think we I think everybody could agree that Dirk wasn't the greatest athlete and neither is Christian Leitner. That's all I was saying. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I didn't think you were comparing him at all. I think similarly as far as style is concerned, you can you can make a case. They're just he he wasn't able to be his best, especially when he was drafted by the an expansion Minnesota Timberwolf team with no talent around him at all. Yep. It's gonna be hard to carve out a kind of career that his game would have dictated he, he should have had. Now, another question I had was, do you think Hurley would have had a decent NBA career had he not gotten into that terrible car accident? You know, that's a tough one for me. I don't know. Very undersized. Um, he was really undersized. I'm not sure how impactful. He was obviously very cerebral. I'm going to probably say no. No offense to him. I just... I don't know how good he would have been, especially because you got to take into account when he would have been playing. Point guards got really good really fast in the mid to late nineties, and they were big. And yeah. he might have he might have been able to have one or two nice years there, but by the time his career would have been hitting its quote unquote peak, I don't think he would have been able to contend with other guards who were much bigger and physical than him. Yep. Another point I had was that. I wrote, damn, Leitner is so good-looking. Um, just wanted to throw that out there. He's a very good-looking man. Well, that was why a lot of people hated him. Oh, everybody get yeah, on. He, he was great at basketball. He was he was definitely a villain. You know, he had an edge to him that was a real asshole edge when he was on the court. And you could tell he fit every image of Duke. That's why that documentary, I Hate Christian Leitner, exists. Get every image of Duke that people who hated Duke has of them. Yep. Absolutely. Um, now back to the game. Duke got off to a good start playing really good team defense, um, just attacking the ball, getting a lot of turnovers to start. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then, like I said, they, they're up seven at the under-16 timeout. But then all of a sudden that goes completely to shit. UNLV goes on a 12-3 to run to tie the game at 18 at the under-12 timeout. Yeah, and I, I had written down LJ just looks like a grown man out there. Oh, he did. And I got to tell you, George Ackles had a couple of big shots there for, for UNLV, and he was providing a, a lot of size that Duke was having some – some difficult time contending with. He finished with seven points, five boards, and a block. But I felt like he he had some really important minutes there in the middle of the first half. Yeah, I think for him it just came down to the fact that he shot fifty percent from the free throw line. Yeah, and that never that's never a good thing. No, not at all. What else stood out to you in this game at, at the half? Did you, you know the sports? Did you know the sports god Don Godfather, whatever you want to call him, Mike Francesa, was on this game? <laughs> I was waiting for you to mention that. <laughs> he was. He, well, that's how he got his start. He was a college basketball savant. Yeah. He's an Saint John's, uh St. John's alum there, Tom. Fuck him. <laughs> well, UNLV led by three at the half. And just some stats for you at the half. And then I want to have you lead on the second half. But UNLV had 14 offensive rebounds compared to Duke's two. They led Duke 16 to four in second in second chance points. Leitner had 20, and Greg Anthony, who I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot as the game goes on here, he had 16. So lead us into the second half. What were some of your takeaways early and as the game progressed? Well, I think UNLV was a little bit lazy on defense. That was one of my first half takeaways. They had to go into a zone because they were just getting blown by, which they should not be by Duke, a lesser athletic team on offense. Um, Brian Davis, player for Duke, ha- was a very strong player. He had a nice three-point play at the end of the first half, but he had an even stronger high-top fade. I absolutely love that. And I think he should have had a little bit better of an NBA career, drafted in the late second round, played for the Timberwolves for a year or two, but fizzled out. I think in, now, in today's game, I think he would have been uh, a pretty good asset for any team to have. Um, UNLV kind of owned the fast break in the first half. I will say that. They did. And they no, owned they the boards as well. And they had a lot of second-chance Yeah, I was just going to say, the, the rebounds and the offensive rebounds in the second half, the second-chance points in the first half really, to me, stood out the most because it, it didn't really matter how great Christian Leitner was or, or, or you know Brian Davis was or Grant Hill was. To me, it was every time they, that UNLV missed a shot, you felt like they were going to get it back. And Larry Johnson really hadn't taken over yet. So you felt like that was eventually going to be coming too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I believe they had 11 offensive rebounds and 16 second-chance points in the first half to Duke's two. So that alone right there. 14. 14 offensive rebounds. Wow. Yeah, so they really own the boards. How much were they up at the end of the first half? Uh, They were only up three, though, 43-40. Because remember, Duke got off to that fast start, and they were able to stave off UNLV's crazy run there. I mean, the game really started with two major runs, 15-8 Duke, 12-3 UNLV, and after that it was pretty much uh, nip and tuck there till the end of the half. UNLV was up three, but again, I'm sure you got the same sense. Larry Johnson hadn't really taken over yet, and you were ready for that to happen. Not at all. So moving on to the second half, the first thing I have written down, speaking of Larry Johnson – he looked a little out of shape. He had to come out middle second half when they really needed him. Um, I don't know if you felt the same way, but he was holding his hand up. He had to come out. Um, I think he was a little out of shape. Yeah, he he seemed like he wasn't really 
he wasn't really able to hold up with the kind of pace of the game, which is weird because all UNLV ever did was Rebels. run. But I, I think the I think the constant banging Wait, is down UNLV low, the running Rebels? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was the I, I thought it was more the banging down low and the physicality going up against Leitner and Kubek and McCaff. I mean, I just felt like it was constantly. It was just a lot of effort. And Johnson didn't get in the flow of the game early, which I think always hurts guys who are reliant on their physical presence. If they don't get off to a good start, they really kind of labor as the as the game goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing I've written down for the second half that Duke really ratcheted up the defense, and they also that kind of led to them increasing their their fast break points as well. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you have here, I mean, Duke ended up being able to use that to their advantage and get up three at the under-12 timeout. And Larry Johnson gets a technical foul because he thought Bobby Hurley absolutely mugged Anderson Hunt. But it really and wasn't that bad if you watch the replay. I mean, he grabbed both his arms, but he went just, for a block. He did. It was just chippy at that point in the game, and I think – Duke starting to impose their style of play, like you talked about, ratcheting up that defense, was really starting to get under the skin of this UNLV team. Yeah, and then you get you get later into the second half, and they're trading basically three-point leads. Um, and then LJ kind of went quiet for a little bit there. Um, and then looking at that, just looking into my notes here, honestly, in the final minute, I think UNLV made a huge mistake here because it truly felt like they were just so much stronger than Duke, that and Duke was kind of playing on their heels, kind of playing not to lose, that they could have gone into the paint anytime they wanted, and they really didn't take too much advantage of that. No, they didn't. I agree with you there. And let me ask you a question. UNLV is up five with two seventeen left, which was their largest lead of the game. Did you get a sense that, you know, this team's undefeated? They run this team off the floor the year before in the national championship. This is where a senior dominant team is just going to take over. Yeah, that championship pedigree. I, I mean, obviously we know the outcome of the game, but even watching it the second time, you just feel like, all right, this is when you turn that lead, you turn that five point lead into an eight point lead, and you hold it. I certainly felt that way. And again, you know, we're going to criticize Larry Johnson a lot during this game. He did finish with 13 points, 13 boards, two blocks, and five offensive rebounds. But I felt like they were kind of quiet and hollow because Very as the hollow, game went friend. down the stretch, yeah, as the game went down the stretch, he just wasn't there. Like you said, he was constantly calling to be taken out or for timeouts to be out to catch his breath. Duke was just beating him up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you go, finally, we go to the end of the game. And um, obviously UNLV has has the ball to end the game. Larry Johnson brings the ball up the court, and there and Duke is daring him to shoot a three, and he didn't pull it. He ends up dribbling into traffic, kicking it out. Was it Hunt? I believe shot a crazy three, and obviously he missed it. And Duke went on to win the game. But I think LJ should have pulled the trigger on that three. I did too. I thought that was his moment. I thought that was his time. And shit, man, he eventually did free her Knicks eight years later. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, with the four-point play. That didn't but... happen for the Rebels here. No, not at all. My big takeaway from this game was what cost UNLV this game was foul trouble. 
Oh, un- undeniably. I mean, they always were. And I think a, one of the biggest moments here for me, man, is Greg Anthony fouling out at the under four timeout. Oh, the, you can't even argue that. He's up three. Because he was one of the, he was easily, if not the best player for, for the running Rebels. I think Anderson Hunt had, had the best game. But Greg Anthony was the catalyst. He was, he was making everything go. And when he fouled out, you even saw him on the sideline imploring his team, come on, guys, finish this for me. Yeah, uh, when he came out, that hurt them a lot because then Anderson Hunt had to become the primary ball handler instead of the the three point guy that he was really as the whole game was going on. Absolutely, he was the floor general in this game. He kind of controlled the pace, and with him out of the game, I don't think UNLV stood too much of a chance. All right. So with that being said, wrapping the game up, who's your most outstanding best player, player of the game, whatever, and then who had the best career? I think we're going to be in line on this one. So for me, Christian Leitner was the best player in this basketball game. Agreed. 28 points, seven boards. Uh, he made his only three that he attempted, and he went nine of 11 from free throw line. No more important that than when they were the game was tied with 14 seconds, and he goes right to the line, and there was never a doubt he was going to sink them both. So for me, Christian Leitner is the player of the game. As for the best player that ended up being the best player in the league going forward was Grant Hill. And yep. he had 11 points, five boards. He was only a sophomore. He was only a sophomore. Uh, he might have been a freshman. Yeah, he ended up having the best career. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's the only Hall of Famer in this game. So I think that goes without saying. Let's not leave Larry Johnson out. That's a two-time All-Star right there. Greg, Greg Anthony had a nice run in the NBA. Obviously, you have Leitner in there. Um, a few other players, but... Stacey Ogman spent 14 years in the NBA. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, he was a a long-time NBA, you know, eighth, ninth guy on a team and um, carved out a nice career. But, yeah, I I definitely think we're in agreement here. Grant Hill at his peak, if if it wasn't for the injuries, man, we're talking about a guy who could have been one of the best players. He was LeBron uh, before LeBron, my friend. That's a really good. That's a really good analogy. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to disagree with that. Yeah, he's by far the best player. So that about wraps up the semifinals. Um, tweeted us at Sorry Sports if you agree and or disagree. I think that you can't really argue with any of those games. Maybe the Ohio State one that was more nostalgia, but it was still a great game. Um, how do you feel about our list? I feel really good about it. I definitely think these are the best three semifinal games. One game I want to give everybody just as an honorable mention. I watched the Wisconsin-Kentucky game from 2015. Kentucky was undefeated at this point. Was that with Carl Anthony Towns? Carl Anthony Towns and Willie Cauley-Stein. They had the Harrison twins who had come back for for their next season after losing to UConn in 2014. And yes, Devin Booker was coming off the bench. So was Trey Lyles. I mean, this they were littered with NBA talent. Sam Decker had a great game for, for Wisconsin here, as did Frank the Tank Kaminsky. Um, this was a really fun game. Wisconsin won 71-64. This is in 2015. And they got revenge because Kentucky beat them in a really close game in, uh, in the Final Four the year before that. So... This was uh this was a good rewatchable too, but I, I like our three. I, I'm still gonna give Michigan Kentucky the nod over your nostalgia pick, but I can understand why you put that game there. It, it was a good one. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you got going on, my friend? Anything changed in your life since the last time we spoke? 
Shit, man, not really. <laughs> Trying to get through this Tiger King doc. I'm three episodes in. I heard after the fifth it gets absolutely wild, so I'm kind of holding out for that. Apparently um, they're putting out another one. Shit, there's another more app. content to this? You know, I, I'm sure you'll agree with this. When we look back on March, April of 2020, we're going to remember two things. Quarantine because of coronavirus and the Tiger King. Yeah. Um, not things that we should be proud of as Americans. No, no. Or as humanitarians. Um, how about you, man? What do you got going on? Um, I started rewatching Ozark. Um, I had already seen it, but I wanted to rewatch it as the new season came out just to refresh my memory. Um, few YouTube shows that I watch, like Round 2, I'm, I'm back in on that. Uh, and aside from that, pretty much just playing video games. I still haven't put that article out. Uh, I'm just a lazy motherfucker. What can I say? I'm a you lazy You gotta get CEO. to that shit, man. Every pod we end, you've been talking about. I know. I know, my friend. Um, but yeah, I mean, working on my ideas over here. Um, decisions, I guess, didn't go over too well. But I think I have a big money one this time. All right. Um, it's a quarantine-based idea. Are you willing to listen? After last week? I am. As long as it's better than your, you know, decisions amusement park, I'm ready. All right. So this one, it's all about the, the current times. We're all quarantined, right? Everybody's everybody's watching TV. Everybody's streaming. Everybody's playing video games. There's really, if, As long as you're obeying social distancing. And at this point, I don't know why the fuck you're not because everything's closed. Aside from going out and doing like a social distance walk... Why the fuck would anybody be out there anyways? Everybody should be listening to this, right? Yes. Now, I think I, I've seen on Instagram and whatnot all these pro athletes playing video games against each other. I think I've come up with somewhat maybe maybe, maybe a billion-dollar idea, at least in the millions. I want to create a platform that's kind of an add-on to either PS4, Xbox, all of them. Basically, it's a subscription-based service. The customer pays, let's say, two to five bucks a month, and they wager against a player. So let's say that, I don't know, who's your favorite baseball? Let's say Aaron Judge, um, you want to play him in MLB The Show, and you're signed up for my app. I'm going to call it Playing the Players, Okay. So That's, that doesn't suck. I'll give you that. You pay for your subscription, five bucks a month. You do a wager against Aaron Judge. You can do any amount. Aaron Judge has to accept it. He can either take the payment for himself, or he can donate it to a charity. Do whatever he wants with it. So let's say you know it's a real high roller gamer wants to play him in MLB The Show, Madden, whatever. They stream it onto Twitch. You have to stream. That's part of it. So I can run my advertisements, make a little bit more money off of that, right? We're actually going to make our own platform. Fuck Twitch. Sorry, Amazon. Um, so you stream it, and it's winner take all. So let's say you, let's say this guy plays Aaron Judge for $100,000. Aaron Judge thinks he's the shit at MLB The Show. The guy beats him. Aaron Judge has to pay $100,000. Or... If Aaron Jones doesn't want it to be too heavy on his wallet, we go into a sponsorship with him. We say, all right, Aaron Judge, you only got to pay $10,000. We'll pay the $90,000. you are just part of, our, you're part of our marketing project now. All right. This is a much better idea. 
I, I think it's pretty genius. Because now, what if, what if just nobody wants to do it? Or what if there's something in contract saying you, you can't do this? Well, I mean, it, it, we're, it's playing video games. The players the players are already playing video games that want to. Obviously, no, I mean the money. I, I mean paying. I mean paying fans basically if they lose to them. Well, I mean, you're gonna have you're gonna have to make sure these guys, at least the large volume of them, accept these challenges, right? Oh, of course. No, there's gonna be a middleman, whether it be a PayPal that holds the money. You have to pay before the game begins. That's just okay. the way it works. I mean, it's not like I'm going to be a fucking bookie and go out there and break your legs. God forbid you sneeze on me while you're breaking your legs, while I'm breaking your legs and you give me <laughs> corona. I'm not going to let that happen. No, there's, of course, a middleman. I mean, it's like with any of these, unless you're going through a traditional bookie where you bet off credit, all these, all these like FanDuel and whatever, um, what are DraftKings, the other ones, all these sports books where you can legally gamble in a lot of states now, you pay up front. So if it's a $30 bet, whatever, you pay the $30, and then that payment just gets erased or paid back to you along with your winnings if you win, or it just it's gone if you lose. Now, I'll tell you this right now. This has a much better shot at getting pushed and accepted than decisions did. I think you're still going to have a couple hurdles, but I like that you thought it all out. It definitely sounds better when you talk it out than decisions did. And uh, I don't think it's a crazy idea. You just got to get all the legalities of it taken care of. But it sounds like you've thought this through, and, and shit, man, maybe this works for you. All right, well, all right, that one's on the table. Anybody that wants to fund us, sorry, sports at yahoo.com. I guess I'll check the email on that one. There you go. And uh, we're coming back tomorrow, right, to give our national championship games? Absolutely. I guess i got to cook up an idea within the next day. Maybe I'll put it to rest till, uh, till the pod after that. Um, any articles you got coming out? Uh, I just did my Yankee ranks for each decade. So after we collaborated on our 30-year team, which, by the way, got a lot of good feedback. So I'm proud of that. Uh, a lot of positive comments my way after – your court of law not really holding up all that well. Yeah, but, uh, I, I bear the brunt of the negative, but that's okay. People had, people had fun with it, and I think that, you know, that was a good pod. Um, but Those I, people can I, fuck I, right off. How about that? There, there you go. Um, I decided to just condense it all into each decade, so I did a 1990s, a 2000s, and a 2010s. So that one's going to be going up on sorrysports.com just to, you know, give fans – memories of certain players that we either didn't mention or ones that fit in individual decades and putting those puzzle pieces together. And then we're getting ready for the draft, my man. We're we're two weeks from Thursday from the NFL draft. So Frenchie's already doing his homework. He's getting prepped for it. We're gonna have him on in a few weeks. And um yeah, that's that's basically where I'm at. We're just we're just trying to generate content and come up with a bunch of good ideas for you guys to listen to. Yeah, we got to keep everybody entertained. All right, well, that about wraps this one up. Like Sean said, we'll be back tomorrow. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and please stay inside. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Talk All tomorrow. Right.